finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things and we talk about them, and sometimes the things that we read are someone talking about something that they read. And such is the case with the subject of today's episode, The Penelope Ad by Margaret Atwood. This is surprising that this is our first Margaret Atwood. Well, it's really the only one that I could find that was of the appropriate length to record on this podcast. Uh, Everything else she has is longer than what we normally do here. In case, I want to be like a little bitchy feminist and say, in case you don't know it, Margaret Atwood has written more than two books. Yes, she has. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, we talked a little bit about this in the Ragnarok episode. This is the second one that we've covered in the Canongate Mythos series. Uh, we had, we, I, I mentioned it, we weren't planning on covering two from that series. It just so happened that I think because of the way that series is set up, that two writers that we wanted to talk about happened to have works of appropriate length that were just in that series. This is, a, you know, a retelling of the Odyssey from the perspective of Penelope, who is Odysseus's long-suffering wife. So, the Penapolad was published, is that right? I don't know. I, I was saying the Penelopead. Penelopead. It's, but I don't know, I'm no, it's a, I mean, one, it's a made-up word, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, and two, I don't speak Greek, so I don't know. So, it was published in 2005, and like you said, it's part of the Canongate Myth series, which is a Scottish publisher. Yeah. So. Again, that's uh, all the books in that are writers writing some sort of, like, reinterpretation or retelling of a myth. Uh, the most famous one we mentioned is the uh, Philip Pullman one about Jesus. Uh, but there's a bunch in there. I'd, I'd like to check out more of them at some point. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Margaret Atwood before we get into it. So she was born in 1938. She's Canadian. And she obviously is a female writer who writes about gender politics, environment, religion, power politics, and animal rights. Mm -hmm. And I think um, everyone knows her from her iconic work, The Handmaid's Tale, which was actually published in 1985. And when it came out in 85, it was a bestseller. And then it sort of had a cult classic, and then I guess in the Trump administration, when there was an attack on women's rights, The Handmaid's Tale came back. Well, they made the show, too. Yeah, a very popular show, and she wrote a sequel just recently called The Testament. Mm-hmm. I guess her later work, which is some of the stuff that people are most familiar with, really focuses a lot on uh, feminist issues and dystopic Environment. She writes a lot about, you know, the future. Yeah. But she's one of those kind of, she's like a speculative fiction writer, but kind of sees herself more as a social realist. I think tend to think of her as the sort of science fiction writer that um, people who don't like science fiction will try to tell you is not a science fiction writer. It's like, I saw a tweet a couple days ago that was like, a deconstruction is when I like something in a genre I don't respect. And it's like, it's the same kind of feel that I I get from a lot of people who talk about Margaret Atwood, but don't like science fiction. They're like, but that one's good. And it's like, okay. 
Well, I think, I mean, she's a well-respected writer. She's yeah. won numerous awards. She won two Booker Prizes, one for Alias Grace, which was also made into a miniseries. It's on Netflix. And The Blind Assassin in 2000. Mm-hmm. But I think what, I mean, some of her later works, like the Oryx and Crake trilogy, that's mm-hmm. clearly dystopic fiction and yeah. has a clear environmental slant. And then, um, I mean, she's kind of known for sort of taking sort of a cultural stand and portraying it in her books. True, yeah. I think that's true. So, The Testaments, that's the sequel to The Handmaiden's Tale, which was published in 2019, Mm -hmm. is also um, a Booker Prize winner. And then, interesting, I just recently read, she did, we talked about the Hogarth Shakespeare series. In 2016, she did a version of The Tempest called Hagseed, which was very popular. Yeah, yeah. I I remember when that came out. I I haven't read that, but uh, I'm aware of its existence. I yeah, mean, that's a similar series to this Canon Gate thing, but with Shakespeare plays rather than myths. I think what's really interesting about Margaret Atwood is she is a current writer. She's still alive, she's still writing, mm-hmm. and she's very approachable. She's big on Twitter, she's active on social media, and I think she is a writer that a lot of people can relate to. Yeah, sure. So, I think that's true. So I think she kind of fits that sort of writer that you can relate to is still alive and is still writing current quality work mm-hmm. which I think is important yeah. I mean I don't understand the I mean I read The Handmaiden's Tale in the, in the 80s and I did recognize it as like a feminist work but I don't understand this whole appropriation of it with the people who dress in the clothing and protest I mean, I understand they're protesting for women's rights, but I don't, I don't get it. Well, I mean, they're just using the imagery from the, I mean, I don't think they're identifying with the, with the, like, world of the, they're just like, I don't know. It's just a, it's just a dramatic way to protest, I guess. I think they, a lot of, not that she predicted things that happened, but I think a lot of what she wrote about were things that would be inevitable happening if. The cult, you know, the country became more um, ruled by fundamental Christian beliefs, and I think that's exactly what had happened during the Trump administration. And I think a lot of these politicians that came to power are like the politicians and leaders in The Handmaiden. I mean, let's talk about the book that's at hand. Let's not talk about a book that we didn't read, and nearly everyone who, and nearly everybody has read it or has watched a TV show and has claimed to read the book. So, yeah. I haven't watched the TV show. They, I kind of deeply resent the TV show for one specific reason, which is now now the most widely available audiobook version is read by Elizabeth Moss, and it's fucking terrible. Really? She is an awful reader. I like her a lot as an actor. Like, fucking go watch uh, Her Smell. That shit rules. But she is, like, so clearly did not want to read this audiobook, and you could tell it in Every sentence that she reads, it is excruciating to listen to. I, th- I gave up like two chapters in. I think that maybe like actors reading audiobooks is equivalent of like models making mo- making movies or you know actors making records. Like- sometimes it works. There are, there are a lot of audiobooks that are read uh, by actors 
that are quite good. Uh, we talked about when we did a study in Scarlet, the it's like an Audible exclusive, but it's Stephen Fry reading the complete works of or the you know the complete Sherlock Holmes. That's really good. I mean, he's done a ton of audiobooks because he's also the guy who did the he did the uh, Harry Potter audiobooks in England, and then I think it's like Jim Broadbent did them oh, in yeah. America. I can't remember. I also think that the when we did the um, Christmas Carol, the Tim Curry version of the audiobook that I listened to was really good. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, I don't... There's a uh, there's a version of I, Claudius that's read by... Uh, what's his face? Derek Jacoby? Yeah. That's really good, too. Um yeah sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad this felt like it was a contractual thing and it was like really not good um but this but that's not we don't need to continue talking about it because we could talk about the penelope ad uh so yeah like i said this is a retelling of the odd do we need to recap what the odyssey is for people i was gonna ask you if you wanted to talk about the plot uh i okay well so the odyssey is like you know, it's like a sequel or like a spinoff of the Iliad. You know, Odysseus is... Is it, is, it, is it Iliad fan fiction? Possibly. Possibly. I don't know. I'm not... I don't know the exact specifics of like... Because they're both epic poems. And I know they were both passed down orally before being written. And like the... the I'm pretty sure the accepted um, truth at this point is that Homer is kind of a composite figure. And there's not really a historical Homer, like the, like some singular blind poet that wrote down both of these stories. So it's entirely possible that, excuse me, that is essentially Iliad fan fiction, that someone was like, I like this cool guy who comes up with the horse plan. I'm going to write a whole story about him. Or, uh, or more likely, I think, was that Dudes would tell the story of the Iliad, and somebody would be like, well, I have a horse guy. And they'd be like, uh, 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 he, uh, Poseidon hit him with some winds, he fought a Cyclops, and, like, that's how we get the Odyssey. Like, they're just free. that's why it's so much more wild and fantastical than the Iliad, because they're just freestyling off their dome trying to come up with what happened to this guy that everyone got hung up on because they accidentally made him too cool in the main story. <laughs> but so, yeah, so look, the Trojan War happens. Odysseus is goes and fights with the Achaeans, which are the Greeks, so he's on the same side as Achilles. And, you know, in the Iliad, a lot of the story is a kind of personal conflict between Achilles and um, Agamemnon? One of the other Achaeans. Uh, like the king type guy. And Odysseus is like largely kind of a mediating figure between them. And he comes up with the Trojan horse plan. And then the Odyssey is about his 10 year journey home where he gets lost with his soldiers and they have a bunch of mythical, fantastical adventures involving goddesses and cyclopses and sirens and sea monsters and whatnot. And then eventually he gets home. And this is what's important to the story that we read. He gets home, he finds out his wife, Penelope, has been, you know, waiting for him for ten years and managing his estate, and she's got all of these suitors, 
and he shows up in a disguise and bests the suitors. Like, the big moment is he shoots an arrow through the handle of a bunch of axes. Uh, the the TSG Entertainment, like, pro- production logo is, like, an animation of that happening, if you've ever seen that at the start of, like, a movie. I just saw recently, I think, when I watched War for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, you know, and then he wins his wife back and uh, fights all the suitors, and then he, for some reason, and that's the big central question of this... He hangs Penelope's, like, 12 handmaids, which important. Not important, but, I mean, there's a parallel there. And, yeah, that's about, that's the story of the Odyssey, basically. Lots of more specific things happen, but they're not really important to this story. I think this, I, I agree with your synopsis, and I think what Margaret Atwood said about the Odyssey is that it is an oral history, of, and it's shared orally, so as the culture changed and became more patriarchal, a lot of the parts about Penelope and the maids were discarded. Mm-hmm. And that's why she gets a smaller and smaller role in the Odyssey. Yeah, so the, like this story starts uh, with an introduction that's basically like, you know, the the big question that she has is, why, what, why did this thing happen to the handmaids? To the maids. They just call them the maids. And this story doesn't really answer it, but it offers a bunch of possibilities. Yeah, and I think it's interesting at this point we should mention, too, that the way the book is structured, it's, like you said, told from the point of view of Penelope, and it's inter... It, there's chapters that tell the story of Penelope from her childhood until her marriage to Odysseus, but then in between each of the chapters, the 12 maids stand in as a chorus, like as a traditional Greek chorus. Yes. And they, in different styles of music and poetry, tell the story, tell their own story and tell the perception of the story of Penelope, which is very interesting. Yeah, but it's not just told, from, it's not just a story about her life told from her perspective. It's specifically narrated. From the her in the present day in the afterlife, sort of looking back on her life and telling this story. So she will like run into characters in the afterlife that are alive in the current day of the story. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I guess the story opens with her and she's in the field. What do they call that? The Elysian field. No. No. She's the in the field of Asphodel. She's in the field of Asphodel, which I guess is the Greek version of heaven where non-important people go. If you're a Greek god or a warrior or a wealthy man or a very religious man, then you'll go to the Elysium fields. And if you're just an average person, then you go to the fields of what's it called? Asphodel. It's just Asphodel. a flower that grows. There. I think it's all the same thing, actually. I think this is just a part of the afterlife. Yeah, and Penelope is there and has been there, and now it's modern times, and she's telling the story. And a lot of the story deals with her relationship with Helen of Troy, who is her is related to her in some obscure it's her cousin, is basically. her cousin, and they have this sort of frenemies relationship where she's kind of resentful of the things, the selfish, vain way is that Helen acts and how it affects her. Because, I mean, literally the reason why Odysseus leaves is because Helen runs off with Paris 
and starts the war and Odysseus is obligated to fight in the war because he made an oath with the other suitors that were originally pursuing Helen and then when Helen's husband Manicus calls upon Odysseus and cashes in the oath that he took to Menelaus that's Menelaus yes that's Helen's husband yeah yeah uh, yeah, so it starts with her, we, her childhood, and she is from Sparta, and she is the daughter of King Icarius, and a uh, naiad. A named naiad. Uh, her name is like Paraboea, but I don't think it's ever mentioned in the book. And she's kind of like portrayed as a sort of distant mother who's very occupied with her naiad lifestyle. And she like makes mention of her mother when it's her wedding. Her mother, she says, "My mother finally tore herself away from talking to the dolphins to attend my wedding." Yeah, and when she is a child, uh, her father gets like a prophecy from an oracle that she's gonna weave his funeral shroud, and so in a way, it, so presumably to stop himself from dying, I guess. He chucks her in the ocean, and she is saved by some purple ducks. And this is, like, one of these moments in the story that, like, opens up these ambiguities about the events of the Odyssey in this story, because she sort of offers up this, not definitive, but this, like, speculation that maybe Poseidon hates her because she he didn't get this sacrifice because she was saved by these ducks. And, like, maybe that's why the Odyssey happens. Because he's like, fuck you, lady. I'm going to make your husband sail around for ten years. Uh, But then after that, after she's rescued from the water, her dad becomes, like, overly affectionate. But she can't ever shake this, like, thing that he did. You know, there's, there's always this, like, whenever they're together, there's always this, like, possibility. Like, dad might just hurl me into the sea again. Because he feels like it. Uh... And then so she ends up, like, growing up in Sparta until the day when she's supposed to get married. And the way it works is, like, they're basically going to have a big competition with a bunch of dudes. And whoever wins the competition gets to marry. Like, she's going to get married no matter what on this day. But it's like, who knows who she'll get married to until after they have this big competition. And Odysseus shows up to the competition and he comes from, like, this, like, scrappy, shitty place called Ithaca. That's like rocky and has a lot of goats and is not ter- terribly rich. And he's like this, uh, like short guy with very boastful, very like, yeah, but he's not the most like athletic or impressive of the bunch. And he very specifically has short legs and he has like a scar on his legs. And so then there's a kind of there's a scene behind the scenes where. Penelope's uncle decides, I guess that's Helen's father, decides that he wants to help Odysseus woo Helen and to win this competition, which ends up just being like a foot race. Yeah. So he helps him drug the other participants to run slower and then to drug himself to run faster. Yeah, and she she speculates that it's possible that the reason that he did... did the reason that he did this was because Odysseus has this, like, uh, 
non-traditional notion that the wife should come live with the husband rather than vice versa. So then that means that there will be less people around Akaris' home should there be like a coup or anything. But that never really pays off. Yeah, because there's this huge part where she goes on about that um, the reason why the males in the Greek culture are so afraid of um, strong and healthy sons and grandchildren is because if you have a grudge, it can be passed down to your sires and they can avenge you. So there's always a chance that there's all these like slights that are happening within the Greek royalty and they're always attacking each other and getting revenge. Yeah. But she also, she doesn't really entertain it, but there's also the possibility that the reason that her uncle helps Odysseus is just because Odysseus is fucking charming. Yeah, and I think they want to get rid of Helen. Well, Helen is beautiful and charismatic and she draws a lot of attention. Yeah. And Penelope is is sort of like a plain, practical, intelligent girl that doesn't use her feminine wiles in the way that Helen does. Yeah, Ellen's also mean. Uh, but yeah, so she ends up marrying Odysseus, and there's this sequence right after they get married where it's like, they're supposed to have this... You know, if you've seen the Game of Thrones episode where... Uh, what's her face? Sansa? Yeah, where she marries uh, Tyrion. Mm-hmm. It's like that same thing. Where it's like everybody's supposed to like chase them into the bedroom and they have like a mock, but not, well, it's probably a lot of times not quite mock, like rape. Where it's supposed to be like, oh, the, the husband, the groom stole the bride. And that's like part of this ritual. And then, I mean, that sequence is almost 100% inspired by this type of thing, like some version of this story, I would assume. Because then, like, he. Odysseus is like, uh, like starts to like put the charm on her there. Like he's like, he brings her into this conspiracy with him. Like you and me together, like we're gonna fool them. And like, why don't you just like make some noises and like, but we can just talk and get to know each other. We'll become friends. And by being a good listener, he he charms her. And this is like our first inkling of like what Odysseus is like. Yeah, and I think that I mean she grows to like. Odysseus, and not anywhere in this story does she say she's in love with him. No, but she does sort of respect him, and he so he really seems to respect her, and they have this mutual um, agreement. They're civil to each other, and they form a relationship. And then they have one son, Telemachus. Telemachus, who's kind of like depicted in the. I like the way he's depicted in this way because it's sort of like just depicted as this sort of disgruntled kind of rebellious teenage son that she has to deal with that's really given her a hard time about everything. Well, yeah. So, like, he takes her back to Ithaca and he's, like... We find out that Odysseus is, like, a mama's boy, but but with his, like, childhood maid. Yes. Who's still around and, like, does everything for him. And is still, like, this mother figure to him. So, like, Penelope can't ever really slot into that, this, like, full space of being, like, the wife. Because everything that she would do for him, this maid just does anyway. And sort of, like, when she tries to do stuff, she's like, oh, no, that's not how he likes it. 
and she just kind of like brushes her off. And she... Euryclea, that's her name. Okay. The main, yeah. Yeah, Euryclea, like, bakes his robes and prepares his food and does all this stuff for him. And then it raises this possibility where it's like, did Odysseus want to take her back to Ithaca because he, you know, is like this self-assured guy who wants to, like, have his own space and because he's rebelling against the, like, normal traditions? Or did he do it because he doesn't, like, he can't make his own food and, like, he doesn't want to be away from his maid who does everything for him? I think not. He's a little spoiled baby boy. Yeah, I think not only that. I mean, his mother is kind of fawning over him as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that might be one of the problems that he has with the maids, is that the maids don't, they resent Odysseus because one of what happens to Penelope after he leaves, and they don't fawn all over him. Yeah. I have, um,. But he's, it's a weird thing, right? Because it's hard to, like, fully understand. I think, like, her take on Odysseus that I really like is he's almost impossible to fully get a handle on. He is, like, very much like an archetypal trickster figure. So, like, everything that happens throws everything else that happens with him into question. Because it's like, yeah, did he want to, like, the question I just asked. But it's also, like, he insists on taking her back to Ithaca. And then, like, when the war breaks out, he does this elaborate plan to try and trick Menelaus into thinking that he's lost his mind, so he won't have to go to war. But then he goes to war and wanders around for ten years, comes home and leaves again. So it's like, does he want to be home? Does he not want to be home? Does going to war, like, is that when he changes? Does Does he realize he doesn't like being home once he's at war? Is he traumatized because of the war, and that's why he can't stay in one place? I don't know, or maybe he just likes adventure. I like the way that he tried to, the reason, the way he tries to prove that he has lost his mind to not go to war is he dresses up like a peasant and goes to, like, plow a field. But this is badly. He's plowing salt (laughs) into the field. And then they show up and they're like, look at this crazy guy. And then one of them says, well, that takes... Odysseus' son and puts him in the way of the plow and says, well, go ahead, go at it if you're crazy. And then he says, I can't. And then he said, if you're not crazy, then you have to come with us. Yeah, and then he helps them win the war. Yeah. Yeah, because he comes up with the Trojan horse, which is iconic. Yeah, and that's a good example of him being like a trickster. And all this, so like, through the Odyssey, he's, he, he relies on trickery to get by. And, like, a lot of the Odyssey is about how he is, like, this wise... Uh, and wily figure, you know, he plugs his ears up so he doesn't have to hear the sirens. He lashes himself to the boat uh, when they're passing between the Scylla and Charybdis. You know, he tricks the Cyclops into thinking that he's nobody. Yeah, and I think I, one of the parts that I like in the story is while Penelope is waiting, she's waiting for Odysseus to come home and she's managing the estates. Yeah. And she's doing a good job because at that point Eurycles helps her realizing that if Odysseus comes back and the land is in disrepair he'll be a poor man and she doesn't want that so she does help him. It's it's also sad because she wants to prove that she can do it like do a good job and manage the land and she is given through we'll talk about it more but she's given through Atwood's additions 
like her own level of like guile and trickery and subterfuge that she does and she kind of has her own little challenge uh and it doesn't matter like he doesn't give a shit when he gets back and he fucks it all up but what i was gonna say is the part that i really liked is that all the while they're getting news in the coming to ithaca through these sort of wandering minstrels who Mm -hmm. are singing these sort of um, very boastful songs about Odysseus and how he is using his masculinity to woo these women to help him get an advantage in the war and everything like that. And she's kind of like, uh like, Yeah. Well, and then once he's lost at sea, the stories that come back, uh, you know, for every act- event that actually happens in the Odyssey, there's a reinterpretation offered here that's you know, baser and more mundane, where it's like, oh, he kills uh, he kills the Cyclops. Or, did he just get drunk and fight a sheep herd? He, you know, he bests Cersei. Or, did he just hang out in a brothel for a couple of months and, uh, you know, do favors for the madam? You know, did he, did he save his men from the lotus blossoms? Or did his dudes just get high and he narked on them? <laughs> uh and so it's like there's there's this ambiguity here too where there's no way because of Odysseus's character too the way he talks the way he sort of hides things and he's cheeky there's no way that Penelope can ever definitively learn which is the real story or not because even if she just asks him you can't believe anything that he says because he is a trickster yeah so after he is missing for about 10 years all these suitors start to arrive because also at this point Penelope is extremely successful at running the estate and it's bigger and worth more than even when Odysseus was there. So all these suitors start to show up because to them it's like a treasure trove. They're not interested in Penelope because at this point, God forbid, she's an old woman. She's 35. She's 35 (laughs) and she's an old woman. In fact, there's like even a joke about like at one point they said, we're going to have a contest to see who wins some kind of strength contest. And the first prize is a week in the bed with Penelope. And then the second prize for the loser is two weeks in the bed with Penelope. And then, so they decide they want to sort of get her to pick a, a, a second husband, a remarriage so that that person can win the estates. But all of these suitors are young men who are very sort of, masculine and very rowdy they like to party they eat all of her food yeah they stay in a half they like this ex- is when they start to harass the maids because yeah. i guess penelope picks these 12 young girls to be her maids that she's going to train to to work with her and brings them into the house and then they're her special maids that work yeah while she's building up the estate she's bringing them in she's like adopt like not like adopt but like taking them in when they're young and sort of raising them and they're sort of like her daughters but they're also like this feminine community that she builds around herself you know while she's got to bear the entire weight of managing this estate with you know her husband gone and he you know his mom is being a jerk to her and she's got this rebellious son. Uh, yeah. And then, so a couple things. Well, one, there's a sequence that takes place in Hades in the present day where she runs into one of the suitors and he's like got an arrow in his neck and he like 
wanders around all the time with his arrow in his neck, putting on this, like, oh, pity me act. I'm a tragic figure. Look how I died. And it's like, she's, it's to taunt her and Odysseus, but Odysseus doesn't care because he's not there. Because we find out that it's like, you can, if you drink the waters of Lath, the river Lath, you can forget and you can, you forget your past and you can be reincarnated. And Odysseus keeps doing that. And he's like a businessman and a sailor in the Royal Navy and all of this stuff. Uh, so he's also not around in the afterlife. Well, it turns out that he does not want to be in the afterlife because he is tormented by the maid. Yeah, well, that's what we find out towards the end of the story. But so she runs into this suitor guy and she's like, hey, man, knock it the fuck off, dude. Take that arrow out of your neck. Stop being a dick. And tell me why. Like, why were you all trying to, to get at me? And he takes the thing out. And he's like, well, you had money. It seemed easy. And also, widows are supposed to be really horny. <laughs> um, and then she's like, why don't you put the arrow back in? You look better like that. Uh, she also runs into Helen in the afterlife. And she's being followed around by a bunch of horny ghosts. Like, these guys are the most pathetic people in the world. Because even, even beyond the veil of death, they are simps. Yeah, and I think it's like Helen cashes in on her legendary beauty. Yeah. And I think it's a funny part where <laughs> she's always taking these baths and letting people watch her take a bath. And then, she, like, Penelope calls her out and says, like, why are you taking these baths? You're, you're a spirit. You don't need a bath. And she was like, it's a spiritual bath. She says, my baths were always spiritual. <laughs> Uh, and then she she tells Penelope, like, oh, you're so pious and prudent. I bet you bathed with your clothes on uh, when you were alive. And then, but, but then Penelope, in the greatest burn in the book, is like, hey, did you, I, the, you know that the historical interpretation is that you didn't even exist? That they did, oh, everybody says they started the war over your beauty, but now they think it was about trade routes. <laughs> burn. I think there's a lot of stuff like that because you kind of get this like sense of their relationship. Like she's mad at Helen for always being Helen, but then being so self-centered that she causes a war, which causes her husband to be gone for ten or fifteen years. Yeah. But so the suitors start eating all of her food to like as a way to like extort her into picking one of them because they're like, "We'll just eat if." You won't pick one of us to have your riches. We'll just eat you into poverty. So it's just all these rowdy boys eating all of her food. And, like, it starts to... Her son starts to get pissed off about all of this happening. And she basically gets... She comes up with this plan to... Which is in the story. It was in the Odyssey. Penelope's Web. Which she mentions how she doesn't like that it's called that. Where she's like, I gotta weave my dad's funeral shroud because he's gonna die soon and her dad's like i'm gonna what soon (laughs) (laughs) um he doesn't like that uh especially because that's also the fulfillment of the prophecy of him dying she's like and it's really elaborate but every day she we she can't pick a suitor until she's done weaving it and then every day when she's done weaving it she gets the maids to help her unravel it so she never makes any progress yeah and i think at this point the unraveling becomes sort of like a social event for the maids and for Penelope. Yeah. And they eat and drink and they talk and they get to know each other. And I think this is... And then I guess her son, Telemachus. Telemachus. I was going to call him Telemachus. That's what I was calling him in my mind. Um, He sees this and he kind of gets a little bit 
jealous. And at one point he decides he's going to go find his father. So he decides to have this sneaking voyage, him and his other teenage rebellion friends take a ship and try to find Odysseus. And they end up going to Troy and they meet with Helen. And then she says, like, you know, not because of his good, you know, sailing skills or whatever, just sheer good luck that he's not killed because there's this attempt on his life that goes afoul. And he comes back and he... Yeah, the suitors try to kill him, but she gets, like, forewarned about it. Yeah. And she intervenes. Yeah. And so then he survives and then he comes back and she's asking him. And he's very belligerent in the beginning and he's like, how is Helen... And she, of course, he says, oh, she's even more beautiful. She looks gorgeous. And then he realizes that his mother is upset. So then he starts telling her that Helen looks kind of ragged, very old. And her teeth fell out. And it wasn't until they were really drunk that (laughs) that they started to think that she looked beautiful. To try to make his mother feel better, I guess, because of this rivalry that he has with Helen. Yeah. She has with Helen. But she start, also she starts getting the maid. She goes first. The maids are now sworn into secrecy with her with the unweaving, and then she starts to kind of get them to kind of act as spies for her because like the suitors start going after them. And yeah, she even tells them, which they take great delight in. She tells them to sort of make fun of her and Telemachus to the suitors to sort of trash talk them. Mm-hmm. And they do, and they enjoy that a lot. And then this opens up another like ambiguity where it's like, did did Penelope by telling them to put on this act have some sort of hand in their eventual deaths? Yeah. But yeah, but eventually one of them spills the beans, and the suitors find out about the unweaving. Yes. So then they're they're getting more forceful and more forceful, and then perfectly timed Odysseus comes back but he's disguised because he wants to trick the suitors and also trick penelope to see if she was faithful to him well yeah he wants to see if penelope's faithful also if he just shows up the suitors will just gang up on him and kill him yeah but if he looks like a weirdo a beggar vagrant like he is disguised which for some reason he loves disguising himself like that uh they'll underestimate him and they won't kill him but <laughs> Penelope immediately recognizes Odysseus. Yeah. And he doesn't know that. And then at one point, she forces the maid, the very loyal maid who loves Odysseus, to clean the feet of this peasant beggar, which she doesn't want to do because she puts on airs even though she's just a servant. She also, Penelope makes fun of her feet. She's like, her feet are just as gross as his feet. Um, But then she sees the scar and she knows that it's Odysseus. So she kind of like, Odysseus thinks that she doesn't know, but she does know. And she kind of like steers him to this sort of kind of contest. And she says, oh, my husband had... Did this thing with a bow and he shot through 12 axe handles. He has a bow that only he can draw. Yes. And so then she says, oh, none of you guys could draw, you could, could, you know, draw this bow. And she brings it out and of course they can't and they're getting increasingly drunk. Why did he take it to war? (laughs) I didn't know. (laughs) Also, I just want to say, a little disappointed reading this, Uh, they don't mention the dog (laughs) at any point. Argo, Argo, fuck yourself, as, <laughs> uh, you know, 
they would say. Uh, the dog, Argo is Odysseus's dog who waits for him, and he finds him dying on a pile of trash when he returns, and the dog recognizes him before he dies. Um, so Odysseus is, is, the beggar's like, yeah, well, I can do it too, because I'm just as good as Odysseus. And then he draws the bow, and at, at this point, he, t- he Penelope recognizes, or she recognizes him immediately. She just doesn't say anything because she doesn't want to. He, she's like, well, this. He fucking loves disguises. I don't want to um, embarrass yeah, him. She does get him at the end though, when he after he reveals who he is. Mm-hmm. She. So then he starts. Um, he starts shooting or shooting arrows. He go. He does the twelve axe handle yeah. thing, and then the suitors are like, "What?" And then he ends up killing him. That's how the first one gets shot with it. Goes through the twelve axe handle, shoots the suitor in the neck. And yeah, he's that's the, the first guy. one to die. Yeah, that's the guy she talks to in the afterlife. So then she gets locked in the chamber with the with the servants and the other women, but not the twelve maids. Yeah. And Odysseus kills all the suitors, and then he says to his son, "Kill these maids." Yeah. And then he decides to take initiative on his own to prove that he's his own man. And instead of killing the maids the way that Odysseus says, he has them hung. Hanged. Yes, hanged. Yeah, and there's lots of stuff about the imagery of their feet above the ground and them flying and floating that's like repeated over and over again in the parts where they're like the chorus uh, and whatnot. And they really drive home the like eeriness of that image. Yeah, because when Penelope sees them, she says they dance away, and then she makes a note that they they technically can't dance away because their feet are still dangling. So, But I guess the maids are actually a part of the original Odyssey, but they play a very small role. So Atwood has expanded the role of the maids in her version, which she tells. So then I guess there's a part where they have a bed... This is one of the tricks, the secret marriage tricks that Odysseus does. He has a bed built that has three posts, and the fourth post is a living tree. And it's planted in their bedroom. And no one else knows that the, that the fourth post is a tree and can't be moved. So then she says to him when he was like, she's like, oh, thank you for saving me from these suitors. Um, I'm going to give you a treat. I'll take my bed out of my room and put it in the hallway and you can sleep in it and then Odysseus goes in a rage because he thinks that she chopped the tree down mm-hmm. so that she could have her suitors come in or something like that and then he, she was like gotcha so so then they reconcile and he's there for a couple weeks and then he says oh I gotta go on another journey because the oracle told me that I have to carry this ore so far into the land that people think it's a winnowing uh shaft or something like that some weird quest that he has to go on and he ends up leaving again yeah well and then the sort of the big last part of the story is the like (laughs) this like thing happens where it's like this modern day trial of Odysseus for murdering the suitors yeah I think and then the maids come and intervene in that and plead their case against him. Yeah. So, like, the half, every other part of the story is some type of chorus by the... I have extensive notes, but they're all upside down. 
by the maids. The 12 maids take on the role of the Claras. And they do, like, the first one they do is sort of like a jump rope chant. And I guess that's supposed to be like a reflection of the fact that they were hanged by this uh, specific type of ship rope that's very, very strong. And then they do like different things. Like at one point they do like a chorus line and then they do like a, um, a song from like the 1920s called the dream boats. And then they do, uh, one is supposed to be like the one with the trial is supposed to be like a transcript of a videotape of the trial of Odysseus where the maids show up. And then They do like a sea shanty when it's the part where Odysseus is lost at sea. And then... I did the dream boats. So they do like poems and like... like Yeah. So whatever like... Whatever the story is about, they do some kind of theatrical version of the information that Penelope states, but they do it in a different style for each of the interludes. Yeah, yeah. But this, like, last part sort of, like, breaks, completely breaks down into, like, a totally, like, it's not, it's I completely, like, non-literal, this, like, whole section with the trial. But that has this, like, interpretation that the story offers of the of Odysseus's return and the death of the maids as being this like either an allegory or just like a uh, whitewashing of the destruction of the like moon goddess cult by what I guess is supposed to be like the cult of Zeus like this like masculine patriarchal cult where like the maids are like the moon priest mate moon maidens who represent like the phases of the moon with penelope as like their high priestess who is the 13th one because you know there's 13 phases of the moon right and little like the axes are like these ritual axes that are used in the cult of artemis and uh, you know, like shooting the arrow through them is like ritualistically defiling them and odysseus is like the high priest, uh, or like the priest king of the the Zeus cult, and like by marrying Penelope, that's like them exerting power over it. But they also offer up this thing, this possibility where there's this thing called like the Year King. Like there's a king, he's the king for a year, and then he gets sacrificed by the priestesses at the end of the year. And so like this sequence where Odysseus goes on the rampage and then the maids are executed could be symbolic of. The Year King rebelling and usurping the cult. I think you're right because at the end of the, at the last interlude with the Maid Chorus, they recite a poem at the very end of the story, they fly off in the shape of owls. Yeah, Which is the symbol of the moon cult. But there's also this possibility that, like you said, that it's like, because they're not, he kills them because they're not subservient to them or that like their connection to the suitors like makes you know him nervous like about losing his power over this place or uh 
you know, all sorts of other things. Like, it's never, like, entirely clear. There's no definitive answer as to why the maids die that's given. Well, I think there's a lot going on with the maids that is kind of dismissed in the original um, poem. So the maids are handpicked by Penelope to be her special servants, and they're given special freedom. And then Penelope sort of dotes on them, and the other maids, the other servants, have this idea that the maids are sort of, you know, they act above their station, they're um, poorly behaved, they're promiscuous, they take advantage of Penelope. And then there's one part where Eurycleides is talking about the maids to Penelope, when, when she finally has to tell Penelope that the 12 maids have been executed, and she was like, well, it w- I said to take those girls because they're awful, petty, promiscuous girls. And Penelope's response is, you mean these, like, fun-loving teenage maids who were abused by the suitors? Yeah. And she's like, yes, those, the, the whorish ones or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then Penelope sort of encourages them to mix with the suitors which she thinks is a good sort of device so she can learn about what's going on, but the maids see it differently because in their mind she's almost like she's pimping them out or she's allowing the suitors to prey on them and to take their innocence. And they get resentful of that. And I think that's one of the reasons why one of the, I guess, menthos, menthas of the pretty cheeks is is the leader of the maids. And she's the one who tells the suitors what Penelope is doing. So there's a lot going on. It's almost like there's a sort of double standard in the in the household where the suitors, even though they're interlopers, they get treated differently because they're men and the maids who may act in a certain way, the same way as the suitors, are condemned for it. Well, yeah, there's also this thing that in the trial section that's brought up where it's like, there's this expectation that, like, the women that serve the household would be offered to male visitors or would be expected to, quote, entertain male visitors. But that would be at the discretion of the head of the household. But with Odysseus not there, there's no head of the household. So there's this um, other possibility that's offered up to why they were killed where it's like, you know, they're essentially you know, they were sullied or whatever without, like, the permission or blessing of Odysseus. And so, like, that's why they're killed, because it's, like, an extension of the suitors taking from him. But then there's also this idea where it's, like, by not being there, it could be that it's out of guilt, because by not being there, he essentially is, like, dereliction of his duty to these people in his home. And so this is a way to, like, wipe the slate clean. Yeah, and I think that when Eurycleides is given, when Odysseus asks her who what what's up with these maids, she tells Odysseus like bad things about the maids. Yeah, yeah. And so ensuring their demise, but for some reason the maids in the afterlife blame their demise on Penelope and Odysseus. Yeah, yeah. And then in the trial part, they summon the Furious, and they, like, hound... Like you said, they hound Odysseus whenever he shows back up I like in the, the afterlife. I like the... The trial transcript is one of my favorite parts, and I like the part at the end where um, Artemis shows up, 
And the judge is like, Miss, please put down that bow and arrow. She's about to take revenge on Odysseus. But then Odysseus doesn't seem to understand why the maids are upset, but he's sort of uncomfortable about them sort of condemning him all the time. Yeah, but then so it's like then it's also this possibility where it's like he doesn't stick around. Excuse me, he doesn't stick around the afterlife because he's literally haunted by his guilt. Uh, and so it's like, is that also the reason that he didn't stick around in the real world? That could be. I like the way that they depict the afterlife for these um, Greek figures. Like they, she talks about it in the modern times that they go to seances. And it used to be people wanted to know stuff. Now they just sort of want to be bothered by their relatives that have passed away. And she talks a lot about it, the the death cults where they used to make sacrifices to the dead. And they would wait for like these times to come where they would like a blood sacrifice would be made and they would drink the blood. And they would get energized. But now time has passed and people no longer do that kind of stuff. So... The dead are sort of forced to like wait for like seances or to be reincarnated to stay relevant. Yeah, and they, she's like, like she sneaks in when there's like a, an open space in the seance when they're not specific enough or the person they're calling isn't going to come. Uh, she also talks about like yeah things are less busy here ever since they erected this like f- fire and brimstone place next door. Like <laughs> it's like the Christian hell showed up later and is like a new development. And so it's like the Greek afterlife is this like stagnant place where like, there's no new souls. It's just, everyone that died is just there unless they decide to go back to Earth for some time. Yeah, and I think it's funny when she meets with Helen and Helen is like, you should try it. There's so many great things. There's like fashion, mm-hmm. makeup, and the internet. And there's like great like, I guess like, you know, if Helen was alive today, she would want to be like a social media influencer or something like that. Yeah. But that's like another like detail that I wish like that are like she's like oh yeah like Odysseus keeps going back to the earth and like having all these jobs and doing all and being like a politician and doing all this stuff and it's like I want to read that too can you write that <laughs> book too please because that sounds cool it's a it's an interesting portrayal of the afterlife but I wonder like how does it work like if you drink from the waters of Lath and you forget and you go back to Earth and your spirit is like some Greek dude, but then you convert to Christianity or you're like baptized or whatever when you're reborn on Earth, do you wa- where do you go? Do you just remember and then it's like, oh yeah, I was originally a Greek guy, so you just go to the Greek afterlife? I think so. I think that's what's happened because she says periodically he shows back up. Yeah, yeah, I guess. And but he then had- he always... Like jets out after a certain amount of time. Their their son also does that too. He mentions at one point that Telemachus is like a member of Parliament currently. Yeah. I assume the political body and not the band, but who knows? <laughs> Could be what if he's Bootsy Collins? <laughs> that would explain a lot. <laughs> but I like the kind of the idea of using the twelve maids as like a chorus in between. Mm-hmm. And then I did find my notes about the different types of things that they do they do a jump rope rhyme they do a song they do a poetry they do a lament which is pretty sad a sea shanty they do the trial videotape they do like an anthropology lecture yeah yeah which that... is interesting they do a ballad and um they do like a dramatic reading and they do a love song and at the very end they do the poem 
Mm-hmm. I think the anthropological lecture is where the moon cult thing comes up. Yeah. Specifically. But I thought it was really interesting. One of the things, the sort of the visual um, depiction of the maids is hanging. They all hang from one rope. Yeah. So that sort of reminded me, I guess, of the George Saunders story we talked about in our previous podcast, the Semplica Girls. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is a fairly interesting sort of depiction of these maids as like a symbol of like, like I said, like the female double standard of like mm-hmm. what is acceptable for men to do and what is acceptable for women to do and what happens when women do what's supposedly only acceptable for men to do. Mm-hmm. Which I think she, like, Atwood talked a lot about that. Because I think that's, I mean, it happens a lot. Like, Penelope is condemned for taking care of the estate but being better at it than Odysseus. Yeah. The mother-in-law and the maid start to sort of pick at her for her choices and things like that. So she takes up these modern, like, farming techniques and things like that. And... Yeah they sort of really, like, take her to task for that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then even when she deals with the suitors, if she's hard on the suitors, then they're saying, oh, they're our guests, you should be nice to them. And then Mm -hmm. when she's nice to them, they say, well, why are you letting me... So she can't win because there's this, like... Like, she... They expect her to sit and wait for Odysseus to come home, but if she sits and waits for Odysseus to come home, there's a part where she's sad and she's crying and the Eurycleia says, like... She gives her all these sort of homespun, like, wisdom about, like, crying too much and being unattractive to your husband. (laughs) So she really can't do anything. She's sort of, she's not the ideal beauty like Helen, who's worshipped for her physical attractiveness. She's sort of a more practical woman, and she gets a lot of slack for using her brain instead of using her feminine wiles. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when she does try to use her feminine wiles... The suitors kind of make fun of her for being, like, an old lady. Yeah. Yeah, no, it sucks. She's got a rough. I think it's also interesting, too, because I like the part where she is talking about... She starts to dispel some of the myths that come up in the stories and the traditional telling of the Odyssey. Stories about herself being, like... Um, unfaithful to Odysseus. Yeah, and... she brings up like this this one myth that where supposedly she had sex with all of the suitors and then gave birth to the god Pan. And she's kind of like, God, that's such a ridiculous story. Yeah. So. Or that she had an affair with one of them and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, I think those parts are cool. Like, all the stuff where she's, they're, like, touching on the different interpretations of the myth or of the story and all the other sort of, like, apocryphal details that have popped up around them. Like, when it's most, I think the coolest stuff in the story is when it is, like, most clearly engaging with the idea of myth and the, like, the way that myth-making is used by society to reinforce its ideology and like turn people into these symbols that they're used to prop up the like dominant worldview yeah and i think that's what atwood says when she talks about this sort of oral tradition of storytelling where it's co-opted by the patriarchy because they want to sort of kind of reinstate and kind of like force this sort of agenda of like 
the masculine narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's like Penelope is kind of like a dual figure. She is a symbol of fidelity and loyalty, but then she's also depicted as this like wanton woman who when her husband walks out the door she becomes this sort of party woman and you know you're not really quite sure I guess depending on what narrative they're trying to push this depiction of Penelope well she talks about uh, at one point directly about the first interpretation and the sort of cruelty with which uh, society will use her story against women that don't match up with this, like, impossible ideal. I also think, like, Atwood takes a couple jabs at, like, the way society treats an older woman. Mm Because there's a point where she's having a fight with her son, and he was, she was like, obviously the only answer is for me to drop dead, because I'm too old to get remarried, and, you know, I'm a burden to my son at the age of 35. And he's kind of like, Mom, like he's rolling his eyes and he's kind of like disgusted with her. And it's like she's like an intelligent, successful woman, but according to the culture at the age of 35, she's just over the hill and a middle-aged woman who doesn't have any value. Yeah, it sucks. (laughs) Do you have anything else to say about this one? Well, I think it's an interesting... It's definitely... it's. Classic Atwood. She takes the things that she holds dear, like the power politics, which is a huge thing in her writing, where she talks about the dynamics between men and women and double standards and societal standards of the role, gender roles of like, and the family dynamics. A lot of it has to do with that. And I think that's interesting and that's sort of right in her wheelhouse. And then sort of talking about this sort of the roles that, like, in traditional mythology that women and men play, I think that's very interesting. But I also think it's, like, fun because she does, like, the sort of um, gossip girl kind of, like, frenemy relationship between Helen and Penelope and then this sort of kind of boastful nature of Odysseus, which how he's pretty much depicted, like you said, Even she can't tell when he is, you know, telling a fable or when he's telling the truth. What did you think of it overall, though? Like, did you... I liked it. I liked the sort of the way that it was structured with the the chorus, like the sort of... Because each chapter is very short. The book itself is very short. But then the reinforcement of the story by the chorus but in a different format each time made it really interesting I thought it was really clever like doing things like the sea shanty and when the maids were young doing like a jump rope chant and at the very end doing this sort of dramatic reading of a poem and at the end of the poem the maids turn into the owls and it's kind of like end scene and I feel like it could make a really visual Like, there was a play made of it, and I think that kind of really would display the sort of unique structure of this. Yeah, I can see that. I think this was far more successful because I think it's more true to Margaret Atwood's writing style than the A.S. Byatt version of Ragnarok. Because I felt like she had to sort of shoehorn her writing style into a more traditional narrative. But Margaret Atwood took her style of writing, which is very modern and kind of like 
she takes like a really unique feminist spin on things and she writes in a way that's approachable but kind of like very creative and inventive and I think she leaned into that with the chorus and I think that made the book more successful uh, I mean I don't have any perspective on Byatt's writing outside of Ragnarok because I haven't read anything else I think that from my point of view I think this is is more successful uh, mostly just because it has a clearer point and premise like there's like a there's like a high concept at work here. It's it's like the Odyssey from Penelope's perspective. It's like a clear like reinterpretation of the myth, and then everything sort of follows naturally from that. I'm trying to flesh out Penelope's point of view and that that half of the story. Whereas Ragnarok was just kind of like it felt more like a writing ex- exercise, yeah, than anything else. Whereas like let me just write out the myths and like it had the connection to her childhood with the thin child but that wasn't as developed as and didn't really come to like a clear point in the way this did like i don't really know what like by was mostly just sort of presenting the myths with a new context that context just being her having read them as a child during world war ii and wasn't really like dramatically reinterpreting or reevaluating them in any way which is what is going on here. But I think I think you would agree with me as a writer. Margaret Atwood is a writer. She writes fiction, but she also writes a lot of poetry. And in fact, mm-hmm. she has a brand new poetry book that just came out called Dearly. And I feel like she is comfortable writing a narrative and also writing poetry. So she's able to put those two together successfully. And I think that really added sort of this storytelling style of this book because it wasn't just like a narrative where she, like you said she reimagined that but Atwood has like a history for doing these sort of creative experiments she does she did that project where she wrote the book that couldn't be read for a hundred years yeah, and, yeah you know she was really um one of the early adopters of using like digital media in her writing and things like that. And I think it shows in something like this. Yeah, I agree. But I think like going back to Ragnarok, like the best parts of Ragnarok are stuff like the Jormungandr chapter Mm -hmm. where it's like, this is a different perspective on this story than you normally get. And working in Loki, like if it had, I think it's clear like that that's closer to what this is doing. Than, than any other parts of that story. So maybe Atwood is like more comfortable writing this or whatever. But I just think it was just like she needed to take a couple more passes at like the premise. Yeah, I like, I mean, I agree with you. I would love to like read a story of like, you know, Odysseus as a like a businessman or mm-hmm. as like a French, French general during, you know, the Napoleonic War or something like that. I think she could do a lot of creative things like that. I think she's just more used to like thinking in a different creative structure than Bayad. She's oftentimes, I mean, she takes elements of like fantasy and like speculative fiction and science fiction and she weaves that into her work. Mm. Where I think Bayad sort of focuses like on romantic literature and like Victorian literature. And I don't think she has that freedom that Atwood has like Atwood has no problem doing like 
magical realism or something like that. Like she's comfortable taking a lot of genres and putting them together. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like this sort of this is creative and it's sort of intellectual, but it does have like a really cool sense of like not taking itself too seriously. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I, it's it's uh, it's pretty funny, like <laughs> overall, like funnier than I expected it to be, just because like. But I think people have this idea of like when they read a Margaret Atwood novel that they're supposed to be like an angry feminist like you're supposed to immediately be like oh these fucking men that's another thing that I don't super like about the TV show is I feel like one of the things that's really appealing to me about The Handmaid's Tale is there's a current of like absurdism in it that is just completely leached out this show is deadly serious and like it's the book is serious too but it's like it tries to make everything weighty whereas I think part of what's cool about the book like America is I mean, I know she's Canadian, but in my mind, like, A Handmaid's Tale is a book about America, right? Mm-hmm. At least that's how I think about it. I think of it being about America, the American evangelicals and, like, Mormons and stuff like that. Uh, and, like, America is weird and grotesque. Like, you think about, like, Hunter S. Thompson writing about America. And there's a lot of that in, like, The Handmaid's Tale, where it's, like, it's a dystopia and, like, ground zero is, like, community potlucks and fucking people in gymnasiums. And... Like, I think that's supposed to be kind of darkly funny in a way that it doesn't seem like the people who made the show got. Well, I think we talked about this off the podcast when I was reading The Testament. I read The Handmaid's Tale in 1985 when it came out. When it came out in 1985, I was a teenage girl. Mm -hmm. So, like, something, like, I graduated from high school in 1989, and I read it when I was in high school, so it kind of really struck me at that time where women were starting to think about their personal freedom and what it meant. So that kind of like the book stuck to me personally because it talked about the sort of female experience, which was kind of like at that point in your life, you're like, that's mm-hmm. what you're interested in. So many years go by and now I'm in my mid 40s. No comments. Oh, uh-huh. And I'm reading the sequel to it, and it's kind of it's it's good. I mm-hmm. liked the I liked it a lot. And I went back and I read The Handmaid's Tale before I read the sequel because I'm that kind of librarian. And I read the book. It didn't sort of get me the way that the first time I read The Handmaid's Tale because I have this thing where if you read a book at a certain period of your life, it means more. And sure. I think that's definitely true. But we were talking about this because people were giving reviews. And talking about on social media. And one of the things that was constantly criticized in the book was the characters were not portrayed by Atwood in the way that they were either portrayed in the, in the TV show or how they wanted them to be portrayed because they, read t- they watched the TV show. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like readers were criticizing the writer for not writing the book that they wanted. I feel bad for her. She's kind of uh, like... A lot of readers of her work, or people who claim to be readers of her work, have decided to foster a very combative relationship with her, which you see, like, on Twitter and stuff. And it's, like, it's not on her at all. Like, she doesn't... Well, I think she... She doesn't instigate it, but, like, they're dicks to her, and they're, like, try to explain her own books to her all the time. I mean, there's this... The thing where she tweeted something... 
that was like she commented on some article in a way that made it clear that she like believes that gender is a spectrum and then like a bunch of people just marched up into her mentions to try and shoot down her worldview and use misinterpretations of her own books as proof about that and would straight up say things like well she wrote it but she doesn't get it like that's like yeah. a thing I kept seeing people say and it was driving me nuts I think what part of the problem is that she's a contemporary writer and she's still alive she wrote an iconic book early in her career and most writers who have an iconic book that becomes a cult classic they're dead yeah. So they don't have to deal with if they write a sequel or if they say anything about the characters in the book saying, well, that's not what the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Like, who would have the balls to go to Margaret Atwood and say, I don't like the way you depicted this character because on the TV show, she's different. Somebody with a dog as their avatar on Twitter, that's the person who who would do that. But it's like... I admire a woman who's in her 80s that's on Twitter and who's willing to say, like, gender is a spectrum, and... I'm baffled by anyone who's that old who's on Twitter. <laughs> you don't need to be on Twitter. Go do something else. I Like, you're great, Margaret Atwood. Don't, you don't need to tweet. She doesn't don't feel even need to... compelled to tweet. <laughs> open up her computer for the rest of her life. She could just sit there and drink tea and read other people's books and say that they're shitty or the characters aren't depicted. Yeah. Like, just because you have in your mind a fan fiction for this character doesn't mean you, like... I don't know. It boggles my mind. Yeah, we're never going to get to the bottom of it. But do we have anything else to say about the Penelope ad? No. I think it's good. I think it's an interesting yeah. take on the story. I think the structure is interesting. I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of, like, poetry in books. I'm not going to say something really... Controversial. I'm not a huge fan of poetry in general. Well, now I want to know. I'll call it out if we have to. What was the controversial thing you're going to say? That I'm not a fan of poetry. Oh, that's it. I thought you were going to go. I thought you were going to go after someone. I thought there was going to be some like anti Tolkien slander on the podcast or something. Well, I have to admit that when I did read through my first reading of those books, I did skip a lot of the poetry. I'm okay. Are you a person who reads the poetry? Yes. Yes. Obviously. <laughs> I read the poetry. I read all the pirate comics when I read The Watchmen. I I think I, I think that stuff's important. I mean, this is completely different. We almost sort of talked about this uh, in the Ragnarok episode. Um, I think that shit's important, but we don't need to discuss that now. Uh, yeah, no, I liked it a lot, too. I think it's really good. It's a really, like, breezy... I mean, like, as much fucked up shit has happens in it, it's a really breezy read. Like, it's like under 200 pages obviously because we covered it but like I pretty much read the whole thing in about one sitting yeah uh, yeah I read it at, this was my second reading of it and I did it it has the luxury though of like it's built on a framework of a story you're probably familiar with like you it can sort of like move itself along I think at an increased pace because like it knows you know the other things that are happening so it doesn't have to like keep reminding you what's going on in the Odyssey. It only really needs to bring that plot structure up when it's directly commenting on it. But yeah, like, it's real good. I, I would, I want to see if I can find a recording of that play because I didn't know that it existed until... What's your favorite reimagining of the, of the you, Odyssey? You know the answer. It's the okay. Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> okay, yeah. 
I love Old Brother Rise. That was one of my favorite movies. One of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. I read The Odyssey as a kid because I liked that movie so much. Great soundtrack. Yeah, it's the, it's that's Old Brother Rise, though. Okay. The interesting thing about that is, like, I guess George Clooney is the Odysseus character. But, like, he's uh, less of a dick than Odysseus, even in the original Odyssey. He also doesn't have the short enough legs. No, no, he's too hot. <laughs> Arguably. Uh, See, when I think of Odysseus, I think of, like, Russell Crowe. I, uh, I could totally see that. I, you know what? 100% that is also what I imagine. Uh, I guess because he's, he's always described as, like, barrel-chested. Yes. I have no idea what barrel-chested means. But he's fat, but also muscular. <laughs> right? That's what it means. That's the other thing. Almost every depiction of Odysseus is too tall. This is the same problem with Wolverine. <laughs> he's too tall, and he's too jacked. Like, Odysseus is definitely fat. But also, he's like a, like I imagine he's built like an old timey wrestler, right? Yeah, I would, yeah, that's how I would picture him. But yeah, I one hundred. Now that you mention it, I one hundred percent just picture Russell Crowe. <laughs> um, but the thing with that is, it's like apart from me, I feel like it, because of Gladiator, right? Almost every like character from like around this time period that's supposed to be like masculine. Like, when we, in an earlier version of the podcast, read uh, Jitterbug Perfume, and I 100% just pictured Russell Crowe as the main character in that. Um, and so I think it might just be every, like, every ancient Greek dude looks like that to me. Yeah, that makes sense. So I feel like you can't go wrong if you're reading a Margaret Atwood book. I don't think I've read anything of hers that I say is, like, really awful. Yeah, she did a comic, which looks really weird. That's like, about, like, a, it's, like... Catbird Man or some shit like that. We have, we have to, we'll have to read that once we're done with uh, Animal Man and Doom Patrol. But I really liked the Orcs and Crate. That, that's like, my favorite thing. That yeah, she's it's done. like a trilogy. I really like that, and I think that's sort of a really interesting. Yeah, those are cool. Yeah. I would I would highly recommend. And I'm surprised those. there isn't or will be some kind of movie or book of it. Man, I would not be surprised, but they're also pretty weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are, those are really cool. So what do we have coming up next? Okay. We are doing Animal Man Volume 2. That's the next one. Okay. Well, Mars, we have... Speaking of weird and kind of fun. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's some... No. But like, I don't know. I don't know There's a bird man in that. Yeah, there is. I think Margaret I would probably like Animal Man. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, so we're going to do Animal Man Volume 2, even by Grant Morrison. I think it's the same artist as in the previous volume, but we'll say when we actually talk about the comic on the next episode. Okay, and then what's our next novella? Our next novella is The Palm Wide Drinker by Amos Tutiola. Ooh, I don't know anything about that. It's the first novel written in Africa to be published in America. Nice. And it's, again, like, we're... What year, what the decade? The 60s, I the believe. 60s. Or the late 50s, maybe. Um, so we're looking at some 60s weird sci-fi, or... No, it's like a... Not quite magical realism, but it's, like you know, like, um... Kind of like a modern sort of folk, ta- influ- folk tale influenced kind of almost fairy story sort fun. of thing. Um... Yeah, it's cool. I think we'll, it'll be an interesting conversation. 
Uh, but so, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone.